Well, good morning. We are continuing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We are looking as a church at some of the amazing teaching of Jesus that's found in Matthew 5 through 7. We're in this section in the sermon at this time where Jesus at the beginning says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then six different times, Jesus talks about the faulty interpretation of the law, the right understanding of the law, and an application to the law for human relationships. Jesus, in our section today, is giving his followers, which includes us today, a calling of how we are to live out the law of God. Jesus is giving his followers the standard of kingdom living, which is good for us to hear. Jesus has given his followers practical ways to live out God's good and perfect law in community with one another. So let me pray for us as we dive into this section today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you for your son. Father, we pray that your spirit will allow us to see your word and believe it. And in turn, bring us to Jesus and know that he is our only hope our only way of life, and our only opportunity that we can have to actually do what we're called to do is by trusting in him and him alone. May we do that today and with our lives. In your name, amen. Well, it's been about a month now that the city of Chicago has had these electric scooters around that you can rent. I'm sure you've seen them, especially around this neighborhood here. There's a ton. I remember the first day in June that uh, I saw all the scooters for the first time. I was having lunch in Wicker Park, and I saw all these people riding around on these scooters. I saw all these people riding these scooters on the sidewalks, which is illegal. All of them riding these scooters without helmets, which is not safe. And all these people really not paying attention to where they're going as they're just enjoying themselves. And I was frustrated. I was pretty judgmental and critical of these folks that were riding these scooters in my city. I thought the scooters were a mistake, and I thought people that were misusing them were not only foolish, but they were wrong. And then a few weeks ago, I was in Dallas for our denominational meeting, and I rode a scooter, and everything changed. (laughs) I rode that scooter on the sidewalk. I did not have a helmet. And I didn't know where I was going, so I was looking around everywhere and was very distracted as I rode that scooter. All the things I judged, I ended up doing myself. To me, I think this is a good illustration for myself and perhaps for you on how we view the law of God. Many of us, when it comes to the law of God, are very judgmental of folks who do not keep the law especially if it's a law that we find very important or one that we don't struggle to follow. We are very judgmental of people. Many of us treat the law as a way to look down on other people and to make us feel better about ourselves. And some of us are like the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, and they take the law and they apply it in the wrong way. Many of us are like I was with the scooters judging everyone out there. But when it comes to God's law, there are also at times when we are like how I was in Dallas. We see the law of God and we ignore it. We don't like how restrictive it is. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to enjoy ourselves and do whatever we want, even if it's against God's law. This struggle with what to do with God's law and how to apply it to our lives was on my mind a lot 
as I worked on this sermon this week. I found this passage that I'm about to read very hard to apply for myself and hard to think about how I'm going to challenge us all to live out these words of Jesus. I was familiar with this passage, and you might be as well, but as I began to examine it this week, it stung. It seemed way too hard to apply and very difficult to live out, especially with certain people that came to my mind. I found this quote by the late great pastor and theologian John Stott about this very scripture we're going to look at, and I agree with his assessment here. He says, Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. So let's look at these challenging words of Jesus that we find in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38. You can follow along in a Bible or in the order of worship, or you can just listen as I read. Here are the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word that is given to us for our good. So when you think about this passage that I just read, who comes to mind? When you hear the title of my sermon, Loving the ho- Those Hardest to Love, who do you think about? If you were to ask the question or answer the question, who is your enemy? What comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Well, let me tell you what came to my mind this week as I was working on this sermon. About seven years ago now, my oldest daughter got her first cell phone for Christmas. And right after she got this cell phone, one of her supposed friends began to use that phone to bully her. There were many text messages that were given to my daughter, especially when she was sleeping and she would wake up in the morning and this supposed friend of hers was saying a lot of mean and cruel stuff about my daughter. When we as parents eventually read some of those texts, it broke our hearts. Well, a week or so after seeing those texts, our family happened to be ice skating downtown and there on the rink was this girl. And i got to tell you, I wanted so badly to accidentally trip and run her into the wall. (laughs) Now, i got to say, as a 43-year-old at the time, that is not an appropriate thought to have on a 13-year-old girl. But she was my enemy. I believe my desire to want to protect my daughter was legit. I believe the hurt that my daughter experienced was not right. 
But my response to the injustice was I wanted revenge. I didn't want justice. I wanted her to hurt. And that is not legit. I think this is what Jesus is getting at in the first few verses of our section today. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We could find this law three different times in the Old Testament. It was a law that was given by God, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was given for judges to be able to have clear and just formula for punishment. This law was given by God to fight against excessive retribution. Prior to this law being given, even the slight injury to one's family could cause someone to avenge that injury by maiming or killing the offended party's family. The eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth law was saying punishment must be proportionate to the crime. But the scribes and the Pharisees were taking this principle of justice in the law courts and they were putting it into the realm of personal relationships. The scribes and the Pharisees were trying to use this law of God to justify personal revenge. They were trying to cover up their vindictive spirit that they had towards others. Honestly, are we any different? When we feel that someone harms us, when we feel like we are treated bad, we want to get even. We want revenge. We want the other person who has harmed us to learn a lesson. And often we deliver that lesson in anger and disdain with our looks, with our gestures, with our words and our actions towards those who hurt us. Desiring justice is a God-given good desire, but it's often corrupted by our fallen nature and our desire for revenge. So even if we feel like we have the right for the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law in our personal relationships with those who hurt us, we still need to hear the words of Jesus. But I say to you, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist, could be translated, do not take revenge on. Do not try to get even with. Do not pay evil for evil. Jesus is challenging us here to not make self-defense our first goal whenever we are hurt. Jesus is challenging us to forego revenge for the sake of others and of God's kingdom. Jesus is challenging us to love. And so Jesus gives these four brief examples, these four scenarios to help us think what it would look like for us to respond in love rather than vengeance when we are wronged. Jesus uses these four mini-illustrations to apply the difficult principle of Christian non-retaliation. Jesus is challenging his hearers, and that includes us today, to think about what would it look like to reflect God's generous love towards others, even when we experience hurt and anger and frustration. So the first example he gives is if someone slaps you on the cheek, you are to turn and offer your other cheek. Most scholars think that this slap was a backhanded slap, and it was representing an insult being given to another person. Jesus wants his followers to say, you are going to endure insults for my sake. You're going to suffer insults and not just try to protect ourselves and our reputation when we are insulted. 
And this is extremely hard to do. And notice a theme that we see throughout this passage. Jesus doesn't give us a reason why we are to respond in non-retaliation. He doesn't say, if you do this, it will bring glory to God. He doesn't say, if you do this, it will convict the wrongdoer. If you do this, it will bring about change. He calls us to respond in generosity and sacrifice because he calls us to do it. He says, this is what I say to you. To follow me means to live a life of generosity, sacrifice, and non-retaliation. We are so quick to retaliate when we feel insulted or treated unjustly. Jesus continues on and he says we shouldn't even defend our rights when we are sued unjustly. His next illustration about clothing being taken away from us by our enemies. If you are sued for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Now, in the ancient Near East, the main two items of clothing that people had was a tunic and a cloak. And if both were taken away, is Jesus saying we need to walk around cold and naked? Well, many believe, and I think this is true, that Jesus is using this illustration as as an illustration of generosity and sacrifice, even if it hurts us at times. And many I read this week said that this illustration is to challenge us about defending our honor, defending our honor even when we think we are right, even when we are right. When we are right or when we think we are right, how quickly we defend our honor, how swift is our retaliation of anger and vengeance if we feel our honor is not being treated the way it should? How often do we not care how we respond to other people because we know we are right? How often is being right more important to us than being known as someone who loves? Jesus continues to illustrate this response of generosity when he talks about walking more miles when you are forced to walk a mile. Basically, in this culture, the Romans had a law, and any time a Roman soldier wanted someone to carry his stuff for them, they could carry it for one mile. That was a law. And Jesus says, if they make you carry their stuff for one mile, carry it too. And then he talks about giving to beggars and borrowers whenever they ask. All four of these illustrations show a generous, selfless love of a person. When they are injured or mistreated, they refuse to satisfy themselves and their own needs for the sake of others. All four of these illustrations portray an unselfish, sacrificial person who thinks of the needs of others more than their own needs and not just protecting their own desires, needs, and honor. Now, i got to tell you, I have really struggled this week with thinking, how do we apply this to our lives today? I have struggled thinking about how awful the abuse of power has harmed so many people in our world today. How victims of sexual harassment, victims of racial discrimination, victims of all types of exploitation and abuse have been harmed by people in power. Is Jesus telling the victims to just remain silent? Is it wrong to stand up for what is right? Are Christians always called to turn the other cheek, no matter what the situation is? 
Is Jesus just calling us to be doormats, to never offer resistance to evil and injustice? Well, the one who is giving us this sermon was not a doormat. And in fact, we can read about how Jesus does stand up for the broken and those that are mistreated and the weak and the abused of his day. And not only that, Scripture calls us as followers of God to care about justice. There are many places we can turn to where God calls us to fight against oppression and evil. One of the most familiar passages to many in the Old Testament is from Micah, where the prophet says, what does the Lord require of us? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Followers of Jesus do need to be people that are merciful. And we need to humbly go before our God and love and serve others. But we are also called to act justly. Justice is very important to our God. So we must not use these words of Jesus to defend evil or silence victims of abuse. That is clear, I hope you know. But, as well, we can't just use these words of Jesus as if they have no real application for our lives. What if we let these words challenge our selfishness? What if we let these words challenge us to not always want to be right? What if we let these words challenge us to stop just protecting our honor at all costs, even if it hurts others? What if we let these verses challenge us to put the interest of others before our own rights and demands? And what if we let these words move us towards a set of values that are very different than the world's values at times? Non-resistance over revenge. Generosity over self-protection. Concern for others over our own concern. Rather than ignore these commands of Jesus or spend our time explaining why they don't work practically in our lives, maybe all we need to do today is ask God this question. Where are you calling me today to work on this in my life? Who, God, are you calling me today to respond this way towards? Jesus is describing in this sermon what life in the kingdom is all about. And to follow our king is to follow him by reflecting the astonishing, patient love of God. We are so quick to demand our rights. We are so quick to care about our own interests more than the interests of others. And what Jesus says, you want to know what love is? You want to know how you are to respond in love in your life? Love is advocating your rights for the sake of the kingdom and the sake of others. We are not just to love those who love us back. We are not just to love those who are easy to love. We are not just to love our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors. We're called to love everyone. And that includes even our enemies, as it says in verse 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love those who desire to harm you. Love those who are against you. Love your enemies. Now listen, we are not asked to love our enemies' character or deeds or teachings. We are not asked to love their ways and actions of evil people. 
but we are called to love them. And this is very hard for us. This call by our Savior to love our enemies is not something many of us can do. You know, one of the ways that we will be seen as salt and light, which Pastor Dave talked about a few weeks ago in the sermon, is how we love. One of the ways that our world out there will see us as salt and light in this dark world is when we love, especially when we love those that are against us. This type of love is one of the most distinctive traits of the early Christian movement. Historians, those that were followers of God and those that were not followers of God, write about the early church being known as those who loved and loved their enemies. This type of love is revolutionary and transformative in the world. In preparing for this part of the sermon, I spent some time reading Dr. Martin Luther King this week. Dr. King modeled in his life and in his death the hard call to love enemies. Dr. King didn't just preach this message of love, he lived it out until he was killed. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And Dr. King practiced this truth even though he saw little results of change from most, if not all, of his enemies. He practiced this love because Jesus called him to practice this love, not because it made his life any easier, because obviously it didn't. It caused him to be killed. In his sermon called Loving Your Enemies, Dr. King says these words about this very passage today. He says this idea of loving your enemy is a basic philosophy of what we hear coming from the lips of our master. Because Jesus wasn't playing. Because he was serious. We have the Christian and moral responsibility to seek to discover the meaning of these words and to discover how we can live out this command and why we should live by this command. Dr. King is right. We need to be responsibly looking at what are the meanings of these words and how do we live out this command and why are we to live out this command. We are to pursue a life pattern after our God. In fact, we demonstrate that we are God's children when we love as our Father loves. That's what verse 45 is all about when he says we are sons and daughters of the Father as we love our enemies. God has given himself generously to the world today. God has given himself generously to his enemies. To the good and the bad, he offers himself in love. Our passage says he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain to the just and the unjust. So to love our enemies is to pursue a life pattern after our God. But how do we do this? How do we practically do this? Well, thankfully, Jesus at least gives us our start. Jesus follows up his command for us to love our enemies with a call for us to pray for them. We must pray for our enemies. We must pray for them regularly. We must pray not just that they're going to get caught or that they're going to get punished or that they're going to get removed from our lives. We need to pray that God will move into their lives and they will meet their God and Savior if they don't already know Him. We need to pray that they will see who they are as children of God. We need to pray for them. And this is hard to do. This is very hard to do. But when we pray, 
we humble ourselves before God and we get a vision not only of the people that we call as enemies and reminded that they are created in God's image, but we can get a vision of who we are before God and how before Jesus entered into our lives, we were called enemies of God. When we pray, we can be reminded of what God has done for us and how he has shown us great love and compassion even though we don't deserve it. And when we pray, we can ask God to to change us, to help us stop being so arrogant and selfish and unwilling to forgive and holding grudges and being prideful that we are better than others. When we pray, we will see our sin and we will see our Savior. And we will be reminded that Jesus not only taught these words, but he lived these words out. Jesus experienced blows physically and emotionally at his trial. Jesus was mocked deeply before he hung on the cross to die. Jesus had to carry something from a Roman soldier, his own cross, to be killed. Jesus was beat up, spit on, mocked and hung on a cross to die and Jesus loved his enemies and prayed for them till the very end. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. This is what our Savior did for us. But please hear something very important as I end this sermon. Jesus here is not just giving us good advice or a good example to follow. If that was the case, we would be defeated by this passage today. I mean, the very last verse calls us to be perfect as our Father is perfect. The last verse calls us to be complete and mature when it comes to how we love. Listen, I don't care how much good advice Jesus gave. I don't care how good of an example Jesus was. I cannot be perfect or mature or complete when it comes to love, and nor can you. Jesus is not just giving good advice to follow here. Jesus is giving us the good news of the gospel. Jesus is giving himself as the gospel we need. Jesus went before us and suffered and died for us. Jesus opened the way for us to truly live as his children because of what he did on the cross. And we must turn to him, whether it be for the first time or the thousandth time today. We must turn to God of love. Because of love, God sent his son into the world. And in love, we find salvation and hope. And believing this and turning to this love, it will compel us to then in turn love others, even our enemies. May we turn to the God of love. May we turn to the gospel of grace. And may we rest on that alone for our hope, our salvation, and our motivation to love. Let us pray. Father, we do ask for your love to meet us here and to remind us of who you are and who we are as your children. And we ask that you meet us wherever we are in faith to see you, to know you, to believe you, and to trust in you. And may that move us towards loving others better than we are doing now. In your holy name, amen. Let's stand together and join in our passing of the peace. May the love of God the Father and the grace of Jesus the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all.